There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. This morning, we are wrapping up our series, looking at the parables of Jesus. And this series for me has been it's been fun in a sense, but it's also been challenging and it's been surprising. You know, I've read the Gospels for about 20 years now on a regular basis and going and studying the parables in particular, doing a deep dive on them each week has been, it's been surprising in some ways, even for me looking at them and realizing there are some major themes that, that I never realized were pretty consistent in the parables. And one of those themes is judgment and this parable that we're looking at this morning, we're going to wrap things up. It's a parable. It's a parable about money, but it's also a parable about judgment. And in some ways, it's similar to some of the other parables that we've looked at over the last few months. It's a story about two men, a very rich man who's religious and a very poor man named Lazarus. And Lazarus is probably the saddest character in any of Jesus's parables. Verse 20, it says that he was laid at the gate of this rich man, which means he, he was probably disabled and couldn't work, couldn't do anything. And so people came and they brought him and they essentially discarded him at the gate of this very wealthy man, assuming that the wealthy man is going to take care of him, provide for his most basic needs, whatever. But the rich man, he provided nothing for Lazarus. Lazarus. And while he lived a life of absolute luxury, one translation says that the rich man feasted sumptuously every single day. We're told that Lazarus spent his days longing to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. Probably was rummaging through garbage as the image Jesus is going for. While the rich man, he's covered in expensive purple clothing, underwear made of imported Egyptian cotton. <laughs> Lazarus, he's covered in sores that were licked by filthy dogs, probably bed sores because of his inability to move. 
And so this rich man, he's living a life of pleasure and ease, and Lazarus is stuck in a pit of misery and despair. And I think the reason Jesus tells the story this way is he wants to draw a really stark contrast between these two. One of the guys, I mean, he's got a gate, he's importing clothing, all these other things. He's at the very top. And we learn in the parable that he considers himself religious. He calls Abraham his father. You know, like he considers himself Jewish. And then you've got Lazarus who is just, he's so sad. His life's so sad. And then they die. They both die. And in in an instant, their fortunes are reversed. Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man is in hell. And the rich man, he's in hell, not because he's rich. And it's not because he was lacking in generosity. Rather, his unwillingness to lift a finger to help poor Lazarus revealed something about his heart. That while he might be able to pay lip service to God, he didn't understand the most basic commandment to love God and to love other people. And the point Jesus is making in this parable about this heartless rich man it's a big point that came up, has come up again and again in this series, is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is one of the main themes of Jesus' parables. It's a, a theme of reversal, that the people that you think are on the top very well in eternity might find themselves on the bottom. And the people that we would view as being on the absolute bottom might end up on the top. And so this parable, it's, it's similar to a lot of the other parables that Jesus taught, but what makes this parable absolutely unique, and unlike any other parable in the Bible, is the level of detail that Jesus gives us about hell. You know, the Bible, it talks a lot about hell. Jesus talks a lot about hell. He actually talks about hell more than every other person in the Bible combined. But when Jesus usually speaks about hell, he speaks of it in kind of a vague way. He uses these these broad terms of destruction or fire or outer darkness or weeping and gnashing of teeth, these words that he's giving us to stir our imaginations, but he never really gives us a ton of detail. And then we have this parable. And obviously you can't take everything in this parable literal. It's a story. But in this parable, Jesus gives us a real window into the mind and heart of someone who is in hell. And so what I want to do this morning is ask, what does this parable teach us about hell? And what does this parable teach us about the love of God? Two very, very basic questions. What does it teach us about hell? And what does it teach us about the love of God? And I know some of you are thinking, I got up early this morning, got all the kids dressed, fought through everything to show up at church, and all I got was a lousy sermon on hell. Like, gee, thanks. I'll, I'll do my best to, to not make it lousy, but you will, you will get a sermon on hell. And hell's a thing that we don't typically like to talk about, something we don't like to think about. And there are a number of reasons why. One, because it's unpleasant, for sure. But there are certain things in the church, I think, that that if you grew up in the church, maybe in particular keeps you from wanting to really talk about this doctrine. And one of the things is that some Christians and preachers and churches speak about hell with what I would call like a gleeful arrogance of sorts. You know, we're right, you're wrong, if you don't turn, you're going to burn kind of mentality. 
and they talk about it's going to be awful and they talk about how bad it is, but there's no tears with it. There's no trepidation whatsoever. It's kind of this strange, self-righteous, gleeful delight. And it's weird. You know, there are some churches that really love to emphasize it. You know, if you're a kid and you say, you know what, you can go to hell, what's going to happen? I'll tell you what happened in my house. You get your mouth washed out with soap. If you're a preacher in some churches and you say, you know what, you very well (laughs) might go to hell, people will be like, that was a great sermon, pastor. (laughs) Like, it's it's a weird thing. And so I think some of the reason we're uncomfortable talking about hell is because there's this, this gleeful arrogance. It's, it's kind of a fear and manipulative approach to it. And I would say if you talk about hell without any kind of trepidation, without any kind of tears, or even just like internally, I think you trivialize, trivialize the reality of it. So that's one reason. Another reason I think we're uncomfortable talking about hell is because our understanding of hell is really lacking. A lot of our understanding of hell has been shaped more by pop culture, by movies, and by bad preaching and bad theology, I would argue, than it has by the actual Bible. And so I think a lot of us, we have a very narrow view of hell and we don't know how to hold together everything that the Bible says because the Bible doesn't just give one picture, it gives a number of pictures. And if you're going to understand this doctrine, you've got to be able to hold it all together. You've got to be able to hold the pictures together to understand what this doctrine is that was so important to Jesus. And if you go to the theologians and you look up what is hell really like, they'll tell you that there are three primary pictures of hell. That there are three primary like descriptors of hell. Hell is a place of punishment. Hell is a place of separation. And then lastly, hell is a place of destruction. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, the apostle Paul, he actually gives us all these pictures. When he talks about people who've rebelled against God, he said they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now, in this parable, we actually get a glimpse of all three of these pictures of hell. Punishment, separation, and destruction. Beginning with what for me is the hardest one, verse 23, we're told that the rich man is in torment. Verse 24, we're told that he is in agony. And this is the image that comes into most people's minds when they think of hell. Hell is a place of agony and torment. And this is probably the hardest piece of it to stomach. You know, all cards on the table, like emotionally, my response to this teaching is probably not any different than most of your responses. Like it's hard for me. Hell is a place of agony and torment. And I would like to just get rid of it, but you can't get rid of it because Jesus made it very, very clear. He said it a number of times that he repeatedly, you know, uses phrases like weeping and gnashing or grinding of teeth, that hell is a place of absolute torment and agony. And words can't really describe how awful it is. 
And so that's the first picture, it's punishment. And I know that can be hard for a lot of people to, to accept, but here's a few things that have helped me along the way in wrestling with this doctrine of hell. Number one, while it is a place of punishment, hell is a place where the punishment is just. So there is torment and agony, there is punishment, but the punishment is just. I don't know about you, but when I look at the evil in this world, I long for a day of justice. I long to, <laughs> and I pray that everything will be made right and that the bad guys don't get away with everything forever. And I would actually argue when you understand that hell is a place of punishment in a very interesting way and it enables you to live at peace in this world, that you know what, there's a lot of evil that we can't comprehend, we can't eradicate, but the bad guys don't win. Everyone, everyone will be rewarded according to their works. Additionally, another thing that's helped me understanding hell as a place of punishment is that Abraham, even in this parable, he's not laughing at this man's misery. He's not in heaven with that gleeful arrogance. I mean, he calls him son. It's a term of compassion. And nowhere in the Bible do you see a gleeful arrogance with Jesus laughing at people's misery or suffering. I mean, in Luke 19, Jesus sees Jerusalem and he knows they're going to reject him and he weeps over them. He just breaks down sobbing in front of his disciples. And so while hell is a place of punishment and torment, it's not a place that God is, you know, laughing or celebrating. And I would say if your understanding of hell is a place where people are crying out for help while God is delighting in people's misery, I don't think that's biblically, biblical. There's torment, there's agony, but God isn't gleefully watching on. This is what we see here with this man. He's longing, you know, can, this fire is unbearable. There's, there's punishment, but that's one of three understandings of how pictures of how were given in the Bible. And I would say you have to hold that picture in concert with those other two pictures, separation and destruction. Separation. We read in verse 26 that Abraham tells the rich man, he says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The second picture of hell, this picture of separation, of the chasm, it's, I think it's what Jesus is getting at when he speaks of outer darkness. That hell is a place of torment, but it's also a place where you're separated from God. You're cut off from him. And you're in a place of absolute outer darkness. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Gravity. I can't watch the movie Gravity. So I don't know how it ends. probably ends well because it's Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. And they're not going to die at the end of a movie most likely. Uh, but the thought of that movie, right? Of getting lost into space and just drifting out into space. Like I can stomach a lot in, in what I watch, but I can't stomach that. Like that to me is is unimaginable thinking about that. But what Abraham's saying here, what Jesus is saying through Abraham, he's saying hell is a place 
of separation. It's outer darkness. It's the agony of being cut off from God, the source of all life. Hell is where you're excluded from the presence of God. Now, this one I don't struggle with as much, and here's why. Sin, by definition, is us saying to God, I don't want you to tell me how to live my life. Sin, by definition, is us rebelling from God, kind of along with Frank Sinatra, I'm going to do it my way. No one's going to tell me how to live my life. I'm going to do it my way. And hell is God saying, okay, and handing people over, and then fixing a chasm between himself and us. You know, from the garden, humanity has been trying to cross this chasm, not to God, but away from God. From the garden, from the first temptation, humanity has been trying to tell God, we like your gifts and we like your stuff and we like all the things that that you've given us and the comforts of the food. We want those things. We don't really want you or we do want you. We just don't want you to tell us how to live. Like we would love to have you as a consultant, but we don't want to have you as a king. And the lie that's embedded in every human heart is that if only we could wriggle ourselves out from under God's rule, we'd finally be free and we could finally live the life the way we want to live without any interference. We'd be the masters of our fate, the captains of our soul. The biblical picture of hell shows us that if that actually comes true, if we actually get totally free from God, how dreadful it is. In James 1, James says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Think about that. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Think about the good gifts in your life. You can jot them down. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And so if every good and perfect gift is from God, then to be cut off from God is to be cut off from his gifts, is it not? To be cut off from God, the source of all light, that's to be put in a place of complete and outer darkness. To be cut off from God, the source of all warmth and joy, is to find yourself in a place that's unbearably cold miserable. You know, the the common understanding of hell is a place of fire. Jesus gives some of that imagery, but when you think about this image of outer darkness, hell might be better pictured as a place that's not unbearably hot, but unbearably cold. You know, in Dante's Inferno, as he's writing, you know, this massive tome about hell, which I think is fascinating, a different day and age, right? Uh, The very bottom of hell, the very center, the worst part of hell you can go to, It's not a place that's unbearably hot. It's a place that's unbearably cold. It's not a lake of fire. It's a lake of ice. Because that's what happens to us when we cut ourselves off from our creator. Now, the only reason why our humanity doesn't totally freeze in this world is because in a sense, God is still near to all of us. Whether you're a believer, you're not a believer. Like God's common grace is still at work in this world. Nobody in this world is entirely cut off from God. 
Uh, he is present. You know, he's to some degree, he's keeping us all warm. He's keeping us from freezing. And that's why there are people who don't worship God, who don't honor God with their lives, but they can still do wonderful and tremendous things to help other people. It's called common grace. It's the grace of God in this world. Eventually, though, Jesus says, and he says this again and again and again. Like every parable, pretty much, there's going to be a time of separation. Right now, everyone's all mixed together, but the day is coming. The sheep are going to be separated from the goats. The wheat are going to be separated from the tares. The good fish are going to be separated from the bad fish and all the other stuff. And when that day comes, all the people who've spent their lives saying, God, get out of my life, will have their wish granted to them. C.S. Lewis, I think he said this, if not, we'll, we'll give him credit. He said, hell is the greatest monument in the history of the world to human freedom. This is a different understanding of hell, isn't it? You know, some people say, well, hell's empty. Uh, I believe in hell, but I believe that hell's empty. And, you know, that's a pleasant thought, I guess. But one, Jesus makes it clear hell isn't going to be empty. And two, there are a whole lot of people that don't want anything to do with Jesus. Like they want nothing to do with the author of life. I forget who it was. Someone once said it's better to rule in hell than submit in heaven. And I think that's a whole lot of people. And God's saying, okay, well, you'll be, you'll be cut off. Lewis, I know he said this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. You want away from me? You can be away from me. So it's a place of punishment. It's a place of separation. And lastly, it's a place of destruction or what we could call disintegration. I want you to think about it. What happens when you actually are able to jump the chasm? What happens when you're actually, like you spend your entire life saying, I want nothing to do with you, God, and you finally actually get away from him? Well, the biblical word for it, it's destruction. Destruction in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean extinction, and I don't think it means extinction or annihilation when it's talking about hell. Destruction, as one scholar put it, he says, usually destruction refers to something that has lost its essence lost its form, lost what it was created to do. And so one, one place where this word's used, it's speaking of barren land. You know, the land was created, God put it here so that it might produce fruit and crops and some land can't produce anything and that land has fallen into destruction. Another picture is a wineskin which has a hole in it. Now a wineskin's used to hold wine and so if it has a hole in it, it's lost its purpose. Another place it's used to talk about a coin that's been lost and no one can find it. Now, coins meant to be spent, and if you lose the coin, it's lost its purpose. It's just a piece of metal hiding somewhere. In the same way, when Jesus talks about hell as a place of destruction, he's saying people have lost their essence. They've lost the essence of why they were created. They lost something very fundamental to their identity and their purpose. You know, and you see this, in this parable, you see it elsewhere when Jesus talks about fire when he speaks of hell. You know, a lot of us, we think of the fire imagery in terms of torment, 
And I think that there's, there's some of that there. But I also think that the fire imagery kind of communicates this destruction idea too. If you have a roaring fire and you throw a Dixie cup into it, what happens? It starts to disintegrate, right? But it doesn't disappear. Now, I'm not a science person. Someone here, like if you're smart, you can explain this. It, it's not like it, the molecules just go away. No, it breaks down like into gases and liquids and solids and whatever else. It loses the essence of what it was, but it's not like the whole thing just goes away. It's just changed into something very, very far from what it was created to be. This is what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of hell as destruction. You know, James, in chapter 1, he speaks of people who are under God's judgment withering. And fading. Now this makes sense, doesn't it? If God's the source of all life and you're cut off from him, like the life and the vibrancy, it's going to wither and it's going to fade because we were built for his presence and we need his presence just like a flower needs a sun. Colossians 1, Paul says that he, that's Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, everything's connected. In Jesus, there's a coherence and everything, everything's held there by him. And without him, without his presence, we deteriorate. We break down. Another way of saying it is without the presence of God in our life, if you actually jump that chasm, you, you deteriorate, you disintegrate into the absolute worst version of yourself. You know, one of the interesting things about this parable is this rich man, Lazarus. What do we see in him? (laughs) He's just the worst version, like a worst version of who he was on earth. Number one, he's still trying to order Lazarus around. Sorry, the rich man. He's still trying to order Lazarus around, isn't he? (laughs) Like, he still thinks he's in charge. Lazarus, go fetch me some water. Hey, Lazarus, go warn my brothers. He hasn't changed. The rich man's no different. He's the same man he was on earth. He's just a worse version of that man. And I want you to think about all of the unholy desires and urges you have in life. So the envious desires, the greedy desires, the lustful desires the murderous desire, someone cuts you off. I don't know why, that's like, that triggers something in me that there's just, for a split second, I could probably kill that person for what they just did on the road. I mean, we all have those things that they come up and we're like, where did that come from? Like a monster just awoke in me that needs to be, you know, put back to sleep. What happens if that monster wakes up and never goes back to sleep? And what happens if it's all of those unholy desires? What happens if all of the worst parts of you were allowed to roam free? Who would you become? You know, one very conservative theologian was talking about hell. You know, if sin is, you know, sin is destruction in our life, then hell is a place where sin runs free with no restraint. And he said this, the judgment of hell, this is really important, the judgment of hell is not the imposition of a new state of affairs, 
but the continuation and intensification of a situation that already exists. There's a lot of big words that end in shun there. But what he's saying is, it's not like you're a really good person and then because somehow, you know, you got on God's bad side, he said, I'm going to damn you to hell and now all of a sudden you're going to be in misery and you're going to be crying out and you're going to be doing all kinds of works of charity and philanthropy in hell, you know, trying to help the other people who are suffering. That's not the picture. The picture of hell is think of people at their absolute worst and then just imagine if there was no society, no restraint, no common grace. Think about the movies that we watch, the post-apocalyptic movies, you know, where there is no society, there's no law enforcement anymore. Think of how awful humanity's always portrayed. I've never seen one of those movies, the post-apocalyptic films where, where it's very bright and hopeful. You know, people are running free and everyone's flourishing. You know, John Lennon's, imagine there's no heaven. Imagine if there's none of that and it's just us on this earth. Okay, go watch any of those films. That's what it's gonna look like. And what Jesus says here is hell, it's a place where you become the worst version of yourself. We see this in, in this man. We see it in his, his still wanting to boss uh, Lazarus around. We also see, you know, in what he asked for, it's also important to see what he doesn't ask for. Any of you guys notice this? The rich man, he doesn't ask to leave. He doesn't ask to get out. There's no like sign of repentance or I've turned from my creator. Oh my goodness. There's no sense of, oh, I was built for God and I've turned from him. And if I could just get one glimpse of him, everything would be okay. He doesn't want to leave hell. He just wants to get Lazarus in, <laughs> right? He doesn't ask to leave. He just says, send Lazarus to me. Have him come to me here. People in hell, they don't get better. And I think we get glimpses of this in this world. Have you ever noticed someone or ever known someone who got caught up in an addiction or an affair and they become delusional? And they lie and they cheat and it's just, you can't trust them and it's just a downward spiral. That's what happens to this rich man. He's not pleading for forgiveness. He's in a place of absolute self-deception. And in fact, when he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers, the commentators will say what he's doing here is he's actually strongly insinuating that the fact that he's in hell, it wasn't his fault. When he says, hey, I know I'm here. Would you mind sending Lazarus to go warn my brothers? What he's saying essentially is I wasn't given enough information. You know, the reason I'm here is because I didn't get enough warning. But if you could give enough warning to my brothers, that'd be great. This is what always happens when sin runs. We become proud, we become self-absorbed, self-centered. We're completely and utterly unable to repent and acknowledge our wrong. And I think when we see this on this earth, human beings allowed to run free apart from the presence of God, we get a glimpse of what hell will be like. Hell's a place of punishment. It's also a place of separation. And from that separation, I think, comes the destruction where people disintegrate into the absolute worst possible form of themselves. 
And so when you see the imagery, you're thinking, you know, is, is there really fire in hell or is that a metaphor? I think there are some people who would argue, no, there's real fire. I think it's a metaphor because Jesus says at one point that there will be fire and another point he said there'll be outer darkness and I've never seen outer darkness and fire coexist. I think Jesus is giving us metaphors just like, you know, some of the ones we have for heaven in the Bible that they're meant to stir our imaginations. But some people, is it hell a place filled with fire? No, 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 no. I think it's much worse than that. Like it's a much worse place than that. Hell's a place where people have no restraint, where they're suffering and where they're, they're just pursuing the most base, vile passions that they have with no self-control, becoming less and less human. Now, that's an awful picture. And I'll tell you, I, I don't get excited about preaching about hell. It's like, hey, let me talk about the worst place ever in all of history for 25 minutes or so. Uh, but we need to hear it because Jesus teaches it again and again. And my job is to open his word for you and show you what the Bible says. But I would say this, that understanding how awful hell is is really essential if you want to understand the love of God. And I know some of you are thinking, what? How can hell teach us about the love of God? Well, a lot of people, they use the doctrine of hell primarily in order to scare people. And I would say there's an extent to which that's legitimate. Like if you're letting sin run free in your life, but you understand the dynamics of hell, you might not let it run free in your life anymore. Like I think hell can be a place of warning, but why is the rich man in hell in this parable? It's not because he was rich. And it's not even because he wasn't generous enough. It's because he lacked a heart of love. And the two great commands in the Bible are to love God and to love other people. And I would say that fear can't produce that kind of love. Fear in the sense of terror. You know, warning people, like, if you don't do these things or believe these things, you are going to go to hell. You might get compliance where people say, all right, I'll obey this thing. I'll do what you say, because they're terrified. I think there are a lot of Christians and a lot of churches where that's the dynamic at play. Here's what hell is. It's going to be awful. Don't screw up. But it doesn't produce a heart of love. It's not going to make you radically generous from the heart. I mean, you, you might give your money because you're doing so out of guilt and compulsion, but it's not going to make you a person of love. And I think Jesus, he gave us this parable to warn us, but I think there's more to it than that. Because at the very end, Jesus, remember, this isn't a real story. This is or a factual events, just as a parable that Jesus is teaching us. And the rich man, at the very end, Jesus has the rich man say to Abraham, hey, send Lazarus to my family. And Jesus, who's telling the story, has Abraham respond, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, if it was someone else talking about this, you'd say, huh, that's interesting. But it's Jesus who's going to rise from the dead. And he's foreshadowing his own resurrection here. And what he's saying, and this is a really important thing to get, he's saying the resurrection by itself won't produce a heart of love. Like seeing that Jesus died and rose from the grave, that's actually not going to change you. 
you know, I mean, it might change you. Like if you saw someone that you knew was dead and their body was lifeless and three days later they were walking around, that would probably give you a fright a little bit, startle you, but it's not going to produce a heart of love in you. It might stir fear. That guy, he was dead, now he's alive. I'm going to do what he says. But it's not going to lead you to saying, you know what, I'm going to lay my life down in love and joy and service to him. Jesus says you don't just need the miracle You don't just need the resurrection. You also need Moses and the prophets. You also need the Bible. You don't just need to see a resurrection. You need to understand why there was a resurrection. It's not enough to say, yes, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You have to know why Jesus died in the first place. I said earlier that Jesus Christ spoke about hell more than every other person in the Bible combined. Why? Why did he talk about hell so much? To warn us? Okay, but the prophets can warn. John the Baptist can warn. Why did Jesus talk about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? The answer is because that's why he came. Because hell was on the forefront of his mind always. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is talking about hell all the time because he knows that he was born to go to hell. What do we describe hell as? A place of separation, punishment, destruction. Think about punishment. On the cross, how did Jesus talk about what he experienced on the cross? He talked about it as the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 53 says Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. On the cross, he died as our substitute and he experienced all of the torment and agony and punishment that we deserve. But he took our place. He took the punishment. What about separation? How is a place of separation? Jesus Christ eternally existed in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Eternally. You know, I've known my wife about just under 20 years, and like I know her better than anyone in the world. I feel like I know her so well. What would knowing someone for eternity be like? The Son knows the Father for eternity. You know, when the Son's born, or sorry, when he's baptized, there's... There's the dove that descends and there's the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But what happened on the cross? The heavens didn't part, they closed. We're told the sky went black, darkness covered the land. And the son cried out, not my dad, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all he got was silence. Can you imagine that? All of eternity, always there talking, always in this perfect relationship of love and fellowship. And now you're crying out in your darkest hour and there's nothing but silence. And this is abandonment like we can't imagine or destruction, disintegrating. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And that what sin does is it brings about death, spiritual death and physical death. And on the the cross, 
Jesus died. I mean, the, the God of, the author of life ceased, his heart stopped beating and he hung lifeless on the cross. Why did Jesus do all of this? What was his goal? Was he wanting us to be terrified our entire lives? You know what? I'm going to go and bear hell for everyone. No. He did it to save us, to redeem us. He did it to give us a hope and a future. He did it so that we wouldn't be a people who walked around terrified, but we would know that he absorbed hell on our behalf. He suffered hell on our behalf so that we might experience life. And he did it all willingly. Isaiah 53, 11, this 53, Isaiah 53, it's this prophecy about what Jesus has come to do. And it says, after all of the pierce for our transgressions, it says, when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. It means when Jesus got out of the grave, and he looked, even though he had just been through hell, he was satisfied. Why? Because he knew he had saved a people for himself. He knew he had provided a way for anyone to come to God, regardless of their sin. Now, if you do away with the doctrine of hell, you know, uh, Pastor Tim Keller said this, and it's always stuck with me. He said, some people, they... They're afraid to talk about hell because they're afraid that that's going to like interfere with the love of God. Like, well, if there's a hell, then God can't be all that loving. And he said, ironically, what happens is when you, you try to remove the doctrine of hell, you actually diminish the love of God. Why? Because you'll never know how much God loves you unless you know what he was willing to go through for you. If I say I love you and you say, oh, that's great can I have a quarter? I'll give you the quarter. I love you. Can you come and help me move? Can I borrow your truck? I would say probably not. I love you, but I don't love you that much, right? Like you know what real love is by the cost someone's willing to pay. And the price he was willing to pay for us was hell. And I would say, unless you understand, unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much God has loved you. You'll never know how much he's loved you until you know how much he's suffered for you. And when you understand that Jesus Christ, the judge of the earth, came not to bring judgment but to bear it, to go to hell for you, it has the power to bring explosive joy into your life. It has the power to bring radical obedience out of joy. And when I look at the American church, which a lot of times, I mean, on the surface, everything seems great, but it seems like it's on life support. We lack power. We lack enthusiasm. We lack confidence. There's a timidity even in how we interact in politics, is there not? It's like coming from a place of fear, not a place of assurance that we are loved by God and he's going to work all things together. Look at how we respond. I can't help but wonder, well, we've tried to water down everything in the Bible. But when you get rid of hell, you get rid of how much God's loved you. And if we knew how much God loved us, if we understood this, what would happen in our lives? How many of you are afraid that God's mad at you because of something you did this week? You know, you're terrified. Like God's out to get you. He's not out to, he went to hell for you. Like he's for your good. How many of you think God's withholding things from you because he's cruel? 
He went through hell for you. He is not cruel. How many of you are sitting on the sidelines in your faith? You're afraid to step in because you're like, I don't know about all that. Your heart hasn't been captured. How many of us, when we sing, your lips move, but your heart doesn't? You don't understand the depths of the love of God that he's shown us on the cross. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of Jesus Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed on our behalf. We're reminded of the hell that he endured to save us from sin and to give us a hope and a future. If you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to come to the table. If you are stuck in sin, I pray that this would be an opportunity for you to lay it out with God, to confess. If you're a person here and you're really discouraged or you're despairing in life, I pray that you come to this table and this would be a feast of joy for you, knowing the depths of God's love for you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you haven't put your faith in him, I pray that you would entrust your soul to him. He went through hell for you to bring you to himself. And I pray that you would respond. Let me pray.